I heard a joke the other day that made me laugh. Uh, what did the accountant's wife say when she couldn't fall asleep? Darling, tell me about your work. <laughs> Why am I the only one laughing? Okay, and yet we find accountants very interesting when we want to know how to save tax or how to best structure our investments to protect our nest egg from the risks of business going bad or being sued. I think the number one tax planning strategy, and you touched, touched on it before, Chris, is you know, make money on your house because it's tax-free. The government hasn't taxed that yet. The other opportunity that I see that people overlook is if you're in small business, there's such a golden opportunity to own your own office in a business. Welcome to The Elephant in the Room. This is the podcast where we love to talk about the big things in property that never usually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia and author of Auction Ready. And I'm Chris Bates, mortgage broker. Before we get started, I need to let you know that nothing we say on here can be taken as personal advice. We always recommend you engage the services of a professional. Don't forget that you can access the transcript for this episode on the website as well as download Download our free full or forecast report. Which experts can you trust to get it right? Theelephantintheroom.com.au. You know, it takes a village to buy a property. We need mortgage advice, legal advice, property advice, tax advice, and financial advice if you really want to get it right. It's an impossible task to find all of this in one advisor. The best path is to find an expert in each field who has a respect and understanding of the other disciplines. Accountants are a good example. They have to know about aspects of the law and financial planning in order to excel in their own field. But what about their role in helping property owners and investors? Today, we're asking accountant Kim Nitschke to tell us about his work, and we think you'll find it more interesting than the accountant's wife. Kim runs Nitschke Nankaro Accountants, a firm with over 1,200 individual and business clients. And as a fellow chartered accountant qualified in financial services and mortgage broking, Kim offers holistic financial advice. He's also a property investor and a licensed builder. Now, that's certainly a unique skill set, and we're keen for some insights today on what property owners and investors should be thinking about as we seek to build wealth. Thank you for joining us today, Kim. It's a pleasure. Thanks for inviting me on the show. Thank you, Kim. Um, how, coming from the accounting side of uh, property investing, how do you think that you look at things a little bit differently than, say, all the other specialties in terms of your mindset when you think about property investing? Uh, well, um, I guess, you know, you think that me being an accountant, I'd sit down and I'd spreadsheet up every property that I buy. But um, I guess my number one focus when I'm looking at properties um, for myself and for my clients is capital growth. I've really discounted the whole rental side of things. Um, and, but to, and, and, and also with that, when I'm looking at properties, I'm also looking at what structure should people buy them in. Um, you know, when, when they come to me and they say, oh, what structure um, should I buy this property in? Should I buy it in a trust or my own name or my wife's name? You know, I'll, the next question I'll go back to them with is also, um, well, how long are you going to hang on to it? What do the returns look like? What do you actually want to do with it? So um, mm. this, when I do it, I try to, and then I look at loans and all sorts of options and, and try to roll everything into one um, pretty much as if I was doing it for myself. Mm. So, I mean, the, the structure that interesting uh, point, I mean, what do you think? Do you think many property investors or many property people do a lot of thinking before they put it into different structures or they just go and sign the contract and, hope that that's the best option i think sadly everyone rushes in and you know um they're so desperate to get the property they don't even think about structures and then they sort of come to people like myself when it's too late that's a really good point actually that quite often and i've heard a number of accountants say that that the clients do go to them instead of asking them for advice at the early stages when they could actually make a real difference they sort of come after the event and particularly with structuring for instance you already signed a contract then that's already uh, in a certain entity i'm curious too though you you've said you dis, you disregard yield you know, you've sort of decided that that's not part of it. And I, and it's unusual to hear a numbers person say that because usually, you know, there's a lot of fixation on the yield. And I'm curious to the journey that led you to that point. Yeah, I guess it goes back to my first property. I used to work at Price Waterhouse Coopers, and um, I had a brilliant 
manager and we'd sit down and we'd brainstorm and he would sort of, he was going down the property track and he was buying um, units, lots of units and then renting them out. And that was sort of like his side hustle. So I blindly followed him down that track and I raced out and bought two units in a little suburb outside of Adelaide in a town called Little Hampton. And it didn't really get all the fundamentals right. I remember I paid um, 60,000 for each unit. So it was two out of a group of three and I was getting $120 a week rent. And I thought it was Christmas, but it was positive cash flow. Everything was fantastic, yeah. but I didn't get all the fundamentals right. And what, what was actually happening was down the road at Mount Barker, they were releasing hundreds and hundreds of blocks of land. So the problem was that my tenant shortly after I bought the property moved out. And then instead of paying me $120 a week, rent, they could get a brand new place on a big block of land for $170 a week. So my model, sort of fell down and what I found myself doing um, was, uh, we love this story, um, so I must have been on to like second or third lot of tenants but I remember going to the Mount Barker Caravan Park one night knocking on their door, they were, they'd moved out of my place, um, they didn't get the new house, these, these people were a different story to that initial um, situation that I told you but still similar yeah. and I begged them to drop the rent $20 a week and have them move from the caravan park back into my units. <laughs> you know, so I think that having that fixation on the rent, um, you know, I went from 120 to hundred, my whole model went out the window and that was the disaster that I was on. And it took me five years to get out of that. And in the end, um, well, it's, uh, yeah, it's funny talking about this now, but I actually ended up leaving PricewaterhouseCoopers and going and working in an underground mine in Cobar. And I tripled my wage, but that was to sort of dig myself out of this this hole that I dug myself with the property sort of journey that I was on. Wow. So Tony, you had a rent. Um, and, I mean, it was pretty glaringly obvious some of the fundamentals yes. now, but hindsight's such an easy thing, right? Like you can go back in time. Um, but you had a rent reduction. Did you have a capital reduction on those units as well, just out of curiosity? So were there a, well, did they fall in price? I did. I, well, when you say fall, after five years of doing everything I possibly could to get those units to work, the model was broken, it was busted. I had my mum and dad over there helping me with gardening and, you know, I introduced tenants and let them have dogs and oh, it was just a disaster. I'd get phone calls from the police in the middle of the night. So I just had to get out of them. Um, and after five years, I got my money back. Right, so that's a loss mm. because that's an opportunity so cost. And your insanity, of course, was, and you had to go and work in a mine to pay for it. <laughs> so that's what. You, so you had a very, very early lesson then in the the perils of chasing yield over growth, and also, as you say, the yes. fundamentals. And so, how did you then start learning about the fundamentals? I mean, I guess we'll get to you know what you do in the professional sense in a moment. It's just too good a story to to not follow at this at this point. Yeah. Well. It's funny because so I went up to Cobar and I was knocking on people's doors trying to get a job and um, they'd, there were three mines in the town and they'd shut down one of them and I was knocking on people's doors trying to get a job and uh, they'd say, oh, what trade have you got, mate? And I'd say, well, I've got two degrees and they'd sort of turn around and go, but half the town out of work and you're coming to me with a degree, they're useless out here. You need a trade, mate. <laughs> <laughs> um, Anyway, so it was funny. I had this beautiful real estate agent managing the properties for me. She went to the St. Vincent de Paul's and got all this furniture and decked them all out while I was up there and got these people in there. And eventually I got a job working on a mine as a labourer and it tripled my salary compared to the accounting job. And I was so nervous and dejected in the interview that I couldn't speak. And I've got to the gap. I was so down and dejected. And, and as I was driving up there too, my mum put $300 in my, you know, console in my car and said, don't, don't tell dad. <laughs> you know, like, back, they were just such great moments in my journey because you, you know, you build on that. And that was the, the real um, trough that I went through. Um, but, you know, fast forward six months, I was back on my feet. I paid the debts down. I had tenants in there and we offloaded those properties. Um, I've got, well, I got uh, the money that I paid back five years later. Um, less all the agents fees and everything I was down, but, um, 
sold that one. I had another property up the road, which was a, um, a house, which I split two blocks off on the side. I sort of didn't really kill it on that either because I didn't sort of factor in all the fees and charges with um, getting extra titles. And, um, you know, I had this beautiful house on a big block. And when you, you scrunched it all down and took a block off either side, you know, you discount the actual price that you get for the house. So you can sort of factor that in. <laughs> this is fantastic because it's just, you know, we see it yeah. all the time and it's just you've actually done it. And and I know you've got a Dumbo for oh, us no. as well and we haven't even got to your Dumbo yet. So this is personal. Uh, I know, I know. But can I just finish off please. the story, please? Because... Um, <laughs> Um, so it was, it was bizarre cause I got all my money back and I had $50,000 left over and my mum and dad had given me 20,000 when I turned 21. It must've been 26. And I was like, what do I do? I'm off this property thing. I just hate it. It makes me feel sick. You know, um, I, I just had that 50 grand. I was just, what do I do? I just, I couldn't think of anything worse but going to property. So I just had a, a break and caught my breath for six months. And then I read this amazing book called Seven Steps to Wealth. My sister gave it to me. It's by John Fitzgerald. I don't know whether everyone's, anyone's mentioned it no. before. Um, so, and that changed my life because it went from chasing rental returns to buying properties on big blocks of land as close as you can to the city, um, buying properties that developers will knock on your door in 10 years' time and want to bash down and build units on. Um, and maximizing all of your rental deductions and depreciation and all of that sort of stuff. But it was just, it was written by a real estate agent who retired in his early 20s or 30s up in Queensland, but he just wrote it in really easy to understand steps. And then I got back on the property wagon. I was, I was getting engaged, so I needed to find a house. So I, I was sort of forced back into it. But this time, the second time, my second attempt, I did it the right way. I got all my fundamentals right, and it just took off from there. Wow. So when you say your fundamentals, right, um, you know, if you could go back to your first units and you didn't buy those two or you didn't go for that, the big house and then on the great block and then devalue your main asset uh, by cutting up the block, um, which we, we see quite common as well where people think it's a great idea to put their block and it's like, well, now you've just destroyed your demand, you know. No one's going to want a nice house on a small block. Um, so... What would you do now? If you were going back to the start, would you still go down this sort of strategy which sounds buying land that developers will want or do you just believe in buying good out, good houses, for example, and holding them? What's, what's your sort of strategy? Yeah, so now I try to get the fundamentals right. So um, I try to buy, um, when I'm buying a property, um, uh, the worst house in the best street. But I sort of have now like... Um, a number of factors that, that the house has to meet. Like I think it's, you know, I used to go to those property seminars in the early 90s where there's basically if you go out and you buy a house, it's going to go up in value. But I, I don't subscribe to that model anymore. I think you've got to be clever. And from all of my experiences, I came up with my own set of rules and it was like I was never going to break those rules ever again. So I try to buy properties now that I sort of more or less need, like a house or a beach house or an office. And I try to roll in the fact that, well, if it doesn't go up in value, I'm still going to use it anyway. And I also try to think, well, what are the growth areas? Like, for example, one property I bought in Mount Barker, I could see that the local was buy low back then, it's Coles now, but they were expanding and they were buying up every street of houses, bulldozing them and extending the car park out. So I didn't have to be a rocket scientist to work out that in, you know, five to 10 years, they were going to push out towards the main road. So I thought, well, why don't I just buy something in the mix of where that car park's heading and, uh, you know, that'll be a great rental property and it's sort of like development potential down the track um, and if I go in there and I fix it up and get some tenants in there, I'll get sort of like half decent return on my investment as well. And so that I bought that in 96. In 2000, so four years later, I had um, developers knocking on my door offering me three times what I paid for it. So that's, that's a great story, but there's an element of risk in that too, isn't there? I mean, there could have been, it may never have happened the way you foresaw it. Um, the, mm. the major employer of the town, you know, may have decided to up sticks and go elsewhere and the supermarket doesn't need to expand or do you know what I mean? That there's, there's quite a lot. And so buying also with the, with that long, I mean, we're all, always talking about a long lens, you know, you need to buy a property with a long view, but you're buying it with a long view. All right. But there's also the, you need an upside in order to make it sort of come off. Right. What, what if the, the upside hadn't come off? What, what, 
what was your your exit strategy? What were your contingency plans? Well, I just sort of uh, knew that 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 town was actually um, going ahead in leaps and bounds because remember I had I knew that all those blocks of land were being released in that town as mm. well. So I was thinking that CBD has got to grow. It can only go one way. Um, I was happy even if that development didn't come off to have that in my portfolio 10, 15 years down the track. You know, I'm always looking mm. at, you know, is this place that I'm looking at buying into, do I want to have it in my property in 10 or 20 years' time? Will the value in 10 or 20 years' time of that place be higher than it is today? Mm. That's my asset tech. And, and I could say hand on my heart with that Mount Barker one, yes, um, it definitely would. But, I mean, you could say I got lucky, but, I mean, I, with all my properties I feel like I get lucky, but... I just sort of choose underdeveloped areas that I think are, what is the, is the gentrification, yeah. that sort of word, yeah. where, where they're underdeveloped but all the yuppies are moving mm. in and the artists and, and all of those guys are sort of taking over the coffee shops and the disused warehouses and things like that and you sort of get a feel for the subject. Yeah. This is on the art. Yeah, yeah, and, and obviously, I mean, I've seen people, and I, even myself, I've identified areas and think, right, that's going to go, and then it's 20 years later it's going. You know what I mean? So you do have to sort of go buy and be able to sit, hold, hold it for that. Oh, absolutely. Like it, it, this is a long game. There's no such thing as making money overnight. You know, I, that, that was a 10, 20 year plan. I've still got that property and what I paid for it, I now get in rent every year off of that. Place. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's interesting. So um, a couple of years ago, a client came to me and she had these uh, two apartments in Parramatta um, and they were getting, this is when the boom in Sydney was sort of going nuts and developers were running out of options and they're like, let's just get apartments in Parramatta. Um, and they were getting some developers were basically speaking to Strata and they were starting to throw, you know, big numbers on these apartments um, and then bang, the boom finished. And uh, so she still got these apartments, but there's no developers anywhere in sight. Mm. And so, uh, it's, it's an interesting one because at the time I was like, wow, if you can get, you know, 20, 30% more than what you sell on the market, that's a great result. Um, and, but, and, and then she's held on, but now it's a case of what do you do with the apartments now? They're not great investments. Developers don't want them. There's an oversupply issue. Um, and so I guess it's a real timing thing, isn't it? You've got to really, you know, everything's got to be right. You've got to hope that the, the, you know, the economy keeps going, et cetera. So there's a little bit of a risk in that into that sort of strategies yeah yeah there is absolutely so what do you see as some mm. of the biggest mistakes like you said earlier that that the problem with your clients is that they often come to you after they've already made all these decisions um and you're there to supposedly mop it up a little bit and help them save tax and whatever it is that they expect of you what do you see as the biggest mistakes that keep coming past your desk over and over again um well uh, I've a lot with doctors and I think the first meeting is always just trying to deconstruct a property mess that they've set up. Um, usually they've got, usually they've got well, let, let's just think of one example. And this is not my Dumbo, but um, this is a customer that's in Canberra. He lives in a really expensive house that he can't afford. Um, you know, he's bought two apartments down the road through some off-the-plan deal and, um, you know, the appreciation deductions were amazing. He looked at some spreadsheets and it was going to cost him $5 yeah. a week. All of that. <laughs> you fast-forward it five, ten years' time and it's just, it's an absolute mess. And the problem, it, it, the reason he's coming to me is because financially he's hamstrung and he can't break out of this cycle. He's got tax bills coming out of his ears and it's like, well, really, the first thing that I would do is offload these properties, which I don't think... I want to have in your portfolio in the next five to 10 mm. years. And they don't yeah. often like to hear no. that. And even as far as like your house is too big, I know it's great to have parties there on the weekend and impress all your friends, but really you can't afford it. The, the mortgage is strangling the daylights out of your cash flow. It's, it's an interesting one. So uh, he's probably on a great income. Yeah. Yeah. Phenomenal. Yeah. And so he's got a great income. So, and he's got top tax rate. So he's got 50% deduction for any loss and he still goes down positive cash flow property strategy. So he's got the ability to go buy great investments and he still falls for the positive cash flow 
and the reason is is that he's like you're saying he's hemorrhaging money on his mortgage um and he's over i guess the kicker to this though is the house that he's got that it's too big for him is it a good investment so yes he'll struggle with the mortgage but at some point he'll sell that tax-free and will that be a payday for him or is it just an expensive home there's potentially something flawed about it well the trouble is he's, he's so comfortable there his wife will be devastated if he sells it he'll, he'll just stay put the best i can do is get him to offload the units that he's got and go again you know like i'm a great believer in that you know life's so short you've got to ride every possible wave that comes your way so if it was my model i'd be making money on my house i'd be buying a beautiful house that you can have all your friends around too but I'd be using my builder's license and renovating it and doing some artificial value add to that place while I'm there. Yeah. That's you though. Yeah, the other <laughs> a lot of people can't do Sorry. that. I, actually, I'm curious too because, I mean, you, you say you, you help a lot of doctors. So I'm presuming, you know, surgeons or, or um, doctors yeah. that have, you know, successful practices or GPs, for instance, yeah. Um, and quite yeah. often, you know, they spend – what, 12 years at university, um, learning everything but business, um, everything but, you know, financial um, things or financial smarts, and yet they're highly intelligent and successful. Um, do you think that they get themselves into a bit of a, a pickle because of that, because that they sort of got this idea that, um, well, it's overconfidence bias basically. I'm, you know, I'm overconfident because I'm really successful and I'm really clever, so therefore it can't be too hard. And let's face it, most real estate agents don't need a degree. So, do you know? Do you know? What I mean? do, you, is, do you do you find that? Yeah, I do. I mean, I mean, I'm amazed at the financial problems that come across my desk from the people who are earning um, a million dollars yeah. plus. Like, I had a conversation with a doctor friend of mine recently, client, um, and he can't live on one hundred and thirty thousand a month. Wow. Mm. You, you know, but mm. it's because um, it's because they. They don't have any financial education in that 13 years that they're at university mm. and they come out and they're very clever people. They're beautiful yeah. people um, and, and they've got great personalities and they've got great business models, but they, they, you know, it's so tough these days. The tax is so high. You find that they're all yeah. working two and a half days for SCOMA and I don't care how much you like your job, you know, that's for the birds. Mm. They need to have this property investment vehicle side hustle on the side that's going up in money in value while they're sleeping mm. yeah the cash flow management for them is probably one of the biggest issues right like um especially when they're running their own business they've got to pay a big tax bill at the end of the year and you know these big chunks of money hitting the bank account and all of a sudden they start living a lifestyle like all oh, that's their money but then they get behind the tax bill and they're you know 300 grand stew at the end of the year you know and do you find that's one of the biggest challenges they have is just managing the pure volume of cash hitting the bank account and segregating it and being wise. Oh, yeah, they're just a washing money. And so it's just dripping through their fingers. Like all the kids are at private schools. They're driving the latest Mercedes, yeah. um, you know, the overseas holidays, the jewellery, the clothing. It's just that it's sort of that they get in this bubble where they're um, socialising with all that social set where um, – you know, the wives aren't working and there's a generalisation or the husbands aren't working or whatever, but they're just, um, yeah, they're, they're, they're in a real trap financially. A lot of these people, when they get to retirement, they've got nothing because they just, every dollar they've earned has been spent before it's actually been earned. So they're, a bit, they're, they're trapped by this success then in a way. It's like they're, they're spending, because I do know, I, I know that, you know, we've had a lot of, um, you know, medical clients where, you know, in the early days, they've got quite a modest income. You know, they've been studying for a long time. They don't start working until they're a lot older yeah. than everybody else. Then, then they get a modest income, which is okay, but it's not amazing. And then when they, they specialise, it can ramp up quite substantially quite quickly. And if they're not sort of mm. keeping a modest lifestyle and sort of in using that extra, extra um, money to, to invest, then they can get completely out of control because all of a sudden they go, yippee, I can finally let go of it because I've been working my butt off. Um, and they, and they do start yeah. spending something. You can sort of understand behaviorally why, how, how that could come about. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, they're so stressed out as well, unfortunately, with their work that they give yeah. us all of these treats mm. and 
you know, you should see my car park at the office. I've got the most amazing cars out there. You know, I said to one of my accounts of the day, I said, go and take a photo of all the cars in the car park out front. It just looked like, the, you know, the um, BMW dealership with M3s and X5s. It was just incredible out there, but none of them could afford it, unfortunately. You know, that's the mm. conversation with the person having the meeting. I said, these guys in that meeting have got incredible cars. I said, yeah, they can't afford it. But they, they do it because that's, that, they feel that's their entitlement. They've worked hard and um, that's what all their friends are doing. And it's, it's not the right way to go. Do you see there's a generational shift as well where maybe some of the younger doctors aren't following that same trajectory? Yeah, I do. Um, yeah, I think it's good in that way. Like they're coming through. The next generation, they're so much... Um, more astute, like they don't smoke and drink like we did. Um, they're at the gym every night. Um, they're, they're, you know, they're, they're reading the Motley Fool every day. They're wanting to get their property portfolio set up. And I, I just take, take my hat off to them, and sometimes it's just giving them a pat on the back and saying, you're totally on track, keep doing what you're doing. Here's a couple of tweaks, a couple of little, you know, they just wanted someone in their corner just to mentor them uh, and just to, to tell them... Um, you know, maybe just do things slightly different to what you've got in mind, but uh, you, you've basically got this and just carry on and, and keep doing what you're doing. But, yeah, there's, there's definitely mm. change, absolutely. So of the, older, but, but, you know, so the yeah. older clients that you have, what would be the catalyst for them to come to you then and to actually say, you know what, it's not working, What? what where have I gone wrong? Um, I think that everyone gets to a point where, you know, it's – uh, when they've hit 50, 55, and yeah. um, some of their friends are starting to retire and they're looking at their wife thinking, um, we, we should have that conversation about retirement, but um, you know, I don't really know how we can do that. We need to get someone professional on board. Um, that's when I often get in or get called in or they'll be behind in their tax returns and have a massive debt. Often they're hiding it from their spouse. Oh, wow. Um, they don't know. Yeah. Uh, they're getting letters from the ATO saying you need to get your super fund up to date, your tax returns are behind. There's there's a lot of that out there and we sort of, you know, help people because they're just, once you've been avoiding the tax office for so long, um, they actually have a real phobia about it. But well, um, the tax office is a really good <laughs> situation. Um, we can often work through it. But, yeah, there's lots of people out there in those situations. It's sort of like a bit of a head in the sand. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's that um, you know that five years the runway is getting shorter on them. Um, they're getting tired and they're like, actually, I want to stop working. How do I kind of get through this transition? Uh, and then they just don't know how to figure it out. And that's ideally where most people go and see financial advisors. But unfortunately, technically, they should have went and saw an advisor ten years before mm. that, or fifteen years, or etc. Um, and that's one of the reasons why I stopped working with that sort of pre-retirees because just felt. Everything the advice I had to do was damage limitation. How do I, you know, risk? Because it's hard to take yeah. risk when you're getting five years out from retirement. So it's all about dialing down, cutting cash flow, doing best with what you've got. Um, and it's a really, it's a hard point. Um, but they've been hiding their head in the sand for 10, 15 years, stressing about it um, night after night, thinking, how am I going to solve this problem? And then they go to someone like Kim and say, can you solve it for me? And I guess you can say, well, I can make things better, but I can't solve, you know, things overnight. Um, yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. Mm. Uh, yeah. So what are some of the things from a structuring tax point of view that I think that most property investors are missing? You know, obviously, you know, I get a little bit apprehensive when I hear the word trust with property investors, etc. So what are some of the things that you think that people should be doing when they're not with their property investments? Um, yeah, I, I, I've got um, a couple of answers to that. I, I think that um, personally I, I love family trusts um, with a corporate trustee. Um, there's a guy in Adelaide, I don't know whether you've heard of him, John Pilates, he was the property guru. He had 56 companies and trusts <laughs> and owned half of Adelaide. And he, he was a, um, I think he was a, he was either Greek or Italian, but he was from that, you know, first generation that moved out here but absolutely cleaned up in the city did an amazing job and he's got these little signs they're sort of like white boxes with blue capitals Pilates written all over them so it's been a bit of a iconic statement in Adelaide to, to drive around and see all of that so um he had 56 so I think that's where I want to aim I've got 10 at the moment 
Um, but but I love the, the structure because it's so flexible in so many ways. Like you still get all of the CGT discounts after you've held the property for 12 months, um, but you also get asset protection as well. Um, you can split income to a lower income earning a member of the family provided they're over 18. So there's so many advantages. And then from land tax, uh, it's also proven we've had massive land tax reform in South Australia. It's proved to be the tried and true model that survived all of that reform um, because with the trust, effectively, they get treated as having their own threshold for land tax. So you can save if you've, you know, rather than pulling all the properties together and having you know, them worth five or six million, you split them across six or seven trusts they all just creep over the threshold of, you know, 500 grand. Um, so you only pay minimal land tax on each property. But the, mm. the other thing that I think that people overlook, like I think the number one tax planning strategy, and you touched, touched on it before, Chris, is, you know, make money on your house because it's tax-free. The government hasn't taxed that yet. Mm. The other opportunity that I see that people overlook is if you're in small business, there's such a golden opportunity to own your own office in a business, and then if you own that for 15 years, you can sell that capital gains tax-free as well. You know what I mean? Mm. You're in for the long haul. What does that mean? You've got two principal places of residence, effectively. Mm. Yeah, if, if the COVID world didn't change the way we worked, as long as you've got a good <laughs> office. Um, it's, uh, but you're right. I mean, even just running a business, there's all these other small business exemptions, right, that uh, you know a lot of people don't even know about. You know, some you know in terms of, uh, you know, the fifteen-year rule, the retirement exemption, etc. What are they? Because um, I haven't heard of either of them, and I'm in small business. <laughs> I talk to my accountant about this, Michael. <laughs> um, well, the fifteen-year exemption. Basically, if you operate your your business out of a uh, a building, it could be a warehouse or an office or anything like that. If you've operated there for longer than fifteen years. Uh, there's no tax, there's no capital gains tax when you go to sell the property down the track. But because we're in such an impatient world, people get in and get in within a, within a couple of years. Yeah. Um, well, if you rent it out, it doesn't apply either. So you've got to meet the criteria. But if you tick all the boxes, there's so many opportunities for getting some leverage there with the tax planning. Um, and with, Yeah, that was one. The other thing that I was going to touch on too was um, I see it a lot like, People buy, I don't know what your, your attitude on this is, but um, buying properties in superannuation funds. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I think that was all the rage like five, ten years yeah. ago, but it really seems to be on the yeah. yeah. now for a number of reasons. Mm. Um, so it's really awkward for people too. Like the thing that people don't realise about superannuation funds is if you buy a property and you put it in there and it doubles in value, you can't borrow against that property in your super fund to buy property number yeah. two. This this standalone assets, which is bizarre, and I can see why the government's done it because they want to limit the risk exposure and they don't want you to be a property magnate magnate via your super fund. But really, that is a self-limiting um, model. And the other thing with super funds is banks are very uneasy about it now, so the interest rates gone through the roof, and the 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 setup fees, the legal fees involved in setting up superannuation fund owning property, horrendous as well now. So I'm not convinced that owning properties in Superfund is a great way to go anymore. I agree 100%. And, look, I've got one in my Superfund. I bought it back in, I don't know, 10 years ago or so. And, um, you know, yeah, the interest rate is now three times almost what I'm paying on another investment property outside of Super. Um, and that is, you know, the bank does that bank that I'm with doesn't want to be in the business anymore, and that's what they're doing. So I have to then look at, you know, a lump sum payment basically to try to pay down that debt, so then I can end up with debt free. So it has changed my whole super strategy because of the regulation changes um, and the banks changes. And you're right, it's. Um, it was a bit of a fad and what I come across a lot of people that have actually bought off the plan in their super, which is insane because, you know, negative yeah. gearing super is like you're only paying 15% tax anyway. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That, that's a, yeah. This, this other thing that crops up too is where people have been given a holiday to go and look at a property for free mm. to Queensland. Mm. Yeah. I wonder why. <laughs> So many of those that I see, and it's like, what were you thinking? Why didn't you just pay for the holiday? 
and you know go and meet yeah. a local real estate agent have a chat about properties not be sort of anchored to a property that you have to sign up on you get a free holiday if you go up there but that's the problem. You know, it just, it's the problem with anything free around property and first home buyer grants is a classic at the, at the moment. And I was talking to some people last night and they're not first home buyers. So they've been looking at established apartments in the same area where there are new being sold and they're comparing the new to the established and saying, oh my God, the established is so much bigger and they're better finished and they're actually, they've got views and the new ones are smaller and they're not as well finished and they have no view and yet they're the same price. And so that's why the established one is worth more. And I'm like, well, you are one of the very small percentage of people actually looking at both because the gift that the government's giving means that most buyers looking at that new stuff are unaware they get more for their money if they look elsewhere. And I think it's a bit the same with super. It's like this idea about you've been given something or all or, or these trips up to Queensland. <laughs> You're given something and it's like, no, you haven't. Oh, my God, that's an expensive holiday. If you like what you're hearing here, please share this episode with others you feel would benefit. And while you're at it, why not leave us an iTunes review? Five stars, please. Every review helps make it easier for other people to find us and hear what our amazing guests have to say. We love hearing your questions and we're planning more listener Q&A episodes. Please send your questions in. You can send them via the website, which is theelephantintheroom.com.au or directly via email to questions at theelephantintheroom.com.au. So holiday homes, um, you know, I think that COVID's kind of brought that back into something that people aspire to. Um, you know, it's I can work from anywhere. Maybe I can do two weeks, two days in the city, can have my beach house. Um, what are some of the tricky things from a tax point of view? You know, because obviously that all comes down to the quality of investment you're buying. Is it, are you still buying lifestyle or are you buying lifestyle plus investment returns? But from a tax point of view, is there certain things that you would approach that in terms of how to best structure things like that? Yeah, well, um, I, I love holiday homes and I, I think that's just such an important part of um, your lifestyle, <laughs> you know, as, you, as you're developing as a property investor. And I, I'd certainly like to put holiday homes in my portfolio. I haven't, I haven't got to that stage yet. But um, can we, just before we talk about structure, can we just talk about how I'd approach it if I was going down that track? Like, because mm. I think that, you know, what you sort of um, – when we were sort of talking about this podcast, you were sort of talking about um, what are most um, mistakes that uh, property buyers make. And I think that, like, insider trading is not illegal in the property sector. And what I mean by that is, um, you know, it's, if, if you go, if you drive down to your little um, local holiday destination, let's just say you live in Melbourne, you go down to Lawn, and you, yeah. you drive around and you, look on realestate.com and domain, it's so hard. And, you know, it, you, I don't like your chances if you just go to an auction, put your hand up and you're the highest bidder, whether you're going to make money on that property. I like to do a lot more research than that. And I would like to actually be on the front. So what I would do is I'd drive down there, I'd park my car, I'd walk along the beach, I'd photograph all of the asbestos shacks on the front, and then I'd send them to Veronica and say, can you knock on these people's doors and ask me if they want to sell? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, and then you're wiping out all your competition because they don't know about what your plan is. And then when it comes on the market, if someone's interested in selling, um, then you're, the, you're in the box seat to be able to negotiate a really good deal. So I wouldn't sign the contract if I didn't think I was getting a $100,000 discount on settlement. Okay, so I've got something for you here. When you knock on someone's door you got to be prepared to pay a premium because you're in, unless it's pure luck that you happen to have just knocked on the door of the person that's just basically had a, a, a compelling reason that they want to sell and they want to sell quickly and they're going, thank you, God, thank you, God, you just sent me an angel, except for that, uh, that scenario, which is highly rare. Most people, when you knock on their door, need to be enticed to sell because they're not thinking about selling. Typically, in my experience, that comes with a 20%, at least 20, 25% premium. So how do you how do you <laughs> how do you get around that premium? How do you get someone to part with their property for less than it might get on the open market? Yeah. So you're gonna think I'm a bit out there when I tell you what I should do. <laughs> I actually do letter drops. Mm-hmm. That's not so, out there. That's, <laughs> just, that's what real estate agents do day in, day out. That's their job, you know. So how do you yeah, do it differently? Okay. So I do them a bit differently. I handwrite mine 
and I look up the owner's name and I do a personal letter to them and I write something specific about their property in the letter. So for example, I would say like, so let's just use the lawn example. I'd, I'd work out all those properties. Then I'd go and look up who owns those, pay 20 bucks a property to do a search and then do a handwritten letter on a little um, uh, like nice writing paper that I get from the news agency. It takes forever, but the strike rate is really, really high. Like you won't believe the numbers when I tell you, but it's like 20% so you, contact yeah, rate. Yeah, but then how many of those do you get to buy at 100 grand under? Well, <laughs> well, um, well it, yeah, so when they do ring me, because they only think that I've written to them, so they'll ring me out of the blue and then I keep in my wallet a little A4 page with all the pictures of the houses that I've written to because I'll say it's Mr. Jones here. I ring you back and it's like, hang on, who's Mr. Jones? So it's like, can you just hold the line? And then like, um, okay, Jones, he's the third one down. There's a picture of his house. Then I can launch into the conversation with him about. <laughs> okay. Of, of the 20% that contact me, um, I, I reckon that, the majority of them are saying, well, it's not for sale, but if you offer me a price that I can't refuse, I'll consider it. Okay. Well, I'm not interested in those guys. But what you find with the asbestos place on the beach with the grass, you know, at knee high and all of the, the gates are falling down and the sheds, gutters rusted off, they are generally owned by people in their 70s. Mm. And they it's become a pain in the neck every time they go down there. It's become a bit of a, um, a an inconvenience for them. So you're actually solving their problem. It might be like one of those boats, you know, that's on the moorings. It's just covered in barnacles. It's just, you know, at the end of the day, it's so difficult that to go there. It just reminds them of what they're not doing, and so they never go there, perhaps. Ah, oh, dear. So, okay, but talk about the structurings or, or the apart from the fact that that's how you're going to go there, and I think you, you sort of do believe in miracles a little bit, I think, but, um, you know, so, apart from the fact you're going to go and find this miraculous owner who's miraculously ready and miraculously happy to take less than market value because they're not being having agents knocking on their door telling it's worth more than that. Um, assuming you've got that, then what? Then how do you advise okay. clients, you know, to, to do this well? Okay. So then um, what's, how, how would I own it? Is mm. that what the question oh, is? Oh, well, just what's next you know, from the accountant. Rather than, rather than yeah. the client well, coming to you after they've done all this, you, you the accountant guiding your clients through this process, what, what's next? Yeah. Um, so then I would, um, would make sure they've got their finance organised. Um, then we'd look at sort of cash flowing on what, you know, the, the place, if it's going to be a rental, well, then if they want to get a tax deduction, it's got to be available for rent for the whole year, mm. if you know what I mean, yeah. if you want to do that. And then if you're going to block it out for, say, Christmas, well, then you have to adjust all of your expenses to make that month private. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? But it's awkward to do Christmas because that's often your highest income earning month. Yeah. So, um <laughs> You know, if it's going to be private, it's going to be private. If it's going to be rental, it's going to be rental. It's hard to sort of have a mix of both, I guess. Well, and this is the um, thing, though. A lot of people do, um, you know, do that mix, and then they say, well, that Christmas is off limits because that's when I want to use it. Bugger that. But um, so this, this is quite common. You might have 60 40% for argument's sake. Maybe it's available for rental. And then you've obviously got to – you can only get uh, the, the deductions on 60% of your expenses, Correct. Mm -hmm. What, yeah, what about right. the impact on capital gains tax? Because, of course, if you're buying a holiday home, that's 100% tax. Well, it's 50% taxable because of the concession rate, right? But, but um, you don't get a, a, you know, even if you only use it for yourself and you don't ever um, rent it out, you still got to pay CGT, right, when you sell it one day? Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. So um, do they set it up in a, so, in a company? Is that what you're saying? That they you know, the first choice might be, depending on the situation, I'd look at the spouse, potentially putting it in their name. Um, but then if they've got a whole raft of properties in their name already or they're a high income earner in their own right, well, then I'd probably go straight to a family, uh, a corporate trustee with a family trust because then that gives you all sorts of options down the track. You might have it for, um, you know, the kids might be little now and then when they're growing up and you sell it because they want to get something bigger and better, well, then you might be able to split income to the kids if they're over 18. You know, mm. so the options just are sort of endless and if in doubt, always use a family trust. 
do you think um, with property, you've done a bit of property development over the years. Yeah. Um, do you think that what are some of the biggest tax mistakes they make um, when they're doing their feasibility sort of study? Um, because I feel like most people miss one or two things on their feasibility, whether it's GST or capital gains tax or stamp duty or etc. What are some of the biggest tax mistakes property developments make? Because the whole thing doesn't make sense if you take into consideration some of the mm -hmm. things that they forget. Um, well, yeah, well, you, you, well, hopefully those people, um, like they've got all the fundamentals right. And, you know, these things, what actually happens is if, if they've got a great block and it takes, you know, double the time to get it through council, double the time to get it all, all the services and the subdivision and everything done. What you generally find is the property is actually going up in value at a faster rate during that period of time anyway. So um, generally in those situations, if a good deal um, and they've overlooked some of those little costs, it comes out in the wash anyway and their end result is actually yeah. higher than their expectations. Um, with most of those structures, um, I would, well, I would always use a unit trust in that situation because you've usually got a couple of parties and they're usually always arguing with each other or wanting to bring another party in or, you know, so the unit trust is very flexible, again, with a corporate trustee, but then I'd have their individual family trust underneath that. Um, but the, the, I guess the probably the, the number one prop, property problem that I see is people buying properties in companies. Um, they're sort of focusing on that 30 or 27.5% tax right now, but they don't get that 50% discount. Um, that's mm. a big problem for people, and they don't often realise that until we come to actually work out the tax on the sale. So I guess, I mean, uh, you know, I heard an accountant once sort of saying, but, you know, the company tax is, what, 27.5%, um, but if you bought it in your mm. own name, then you're going to be paying 45%, you know, tax on it, on half of it. So that comes down, what, 22.5%, right? So it's certainly marginally more, yeah. but then you get to save on, on but you save on land tax? Um, if it's under the threshold, you know, so, so all that in the wash and there's all those sort of numbers. But, of course, that's relying on, on tax rates being somewhat predictable, right? But you mentioned earlier in Family Trust um, that you you get the same CGT um, benefits or, or concessions as you do if you buy in your own name. I didn't know that. So is that is that – can you explain that better for us? Oh, sorry. Um, yeah, so the, the family trust, um, yeah, once you've held a capital gains tax asset for longer than um, 12 months, they get the 50% discount when they're distributing to um, individuals. Or, right, so it's exactly uh, the same as... Um, yeah. Yeah. yeah, 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 so it makes no difference. And mm. then, you know, the beauty of that is, um, like, like, circumstances change. And if you've got it in... A partnership or you've got an individual's name that's fixed and that income needs to fall on their tax returns mm. if it's this you know individual or it's a partnership or whatever whereas the beauty of the, the the family trust is you can split it to any family member providers um, you know allowed for in the trustee yeah it's extremely flexible and and you get that discount as well so they're a really good vehicle um the only problem with the trust is if it's negatively geared those losses get trapped in the trust. You know, and that's another trap for people. So, like, you know, uh, people get excited about this whole negative gearing yeah. um, phenomenon. Um, and then at the end of the year one, they go, where's my tax deduction? We go, hang on, it's in a family trust. Those tr those losses are locked in there until you make a gain. Sometimes they're locked in there until you sell the property. Yeah. But, um, you know, if, if there's another business that that person owns, which is often the case if there's sole traders or business people, they can tip money into that loss-making trust and use up some of the losses that way. There's other ways around. It's just that if there's salary and wage earn and earners using a family trust to own their properties as a vehicle, sometimes those losses might get trapped in there and it might not be a great vehicle for them. Yeah, so it just increases their cash flow outlay every year for the properties. Um, most people are probably borrowing. If they have got a house, they're borrowing 105% of the purchase price um, interest rates are very low right now, so even great properties, the cash flow isn't that bad because interest rates are you know three percent. They're not oh, five or six percent. Terrible. Um, <laughs> rents have gone down substantially. <laughs> yeah, well, if you've got a good tenant, and you know you're right. Like if you have to re-rent it out, a lot of rents haven't really dropped. Um, 
but yeah, I mean, the cash flows aren't too bad because low interest rates. But if rates rise, for example, or you know they haven't got a tenant uh, and they have this big loss, it does make one of the big negatives of that trust structure is that you know you just have to keep outlaying everything mm-hmm. rather than get this uh, big kick in you know July every year to kind of top up your kitty. Um, what about yeah and and. Sorry. Oh, I was about to say too, because CGT is a bit complicated if you ever move out of your property for a period of time and then move back into it or if you actually rented it out before you moved into it. I mean, there's different ways in which it's calculated, isn't it? So, and I guess a lot of people, I remember doing a CPD course on that at REI some years back. So I've got some understanding that there are differences, but that's obviously I'm not an accountant, so I don't know what those differences are. Um but there is a difference in the options of how you calculate the gain, you know what I mean? And so can you just sort of talk through that for us as well? Well, moving in and out of properties, um, there's so many advantages to property ownership in the tax legislation. Um, So let's just say you own a property and it's a principal place of residence and then you decide that you're going to have a tree change and you move out to the country and rent a place for a couple of years and then you move back into your principal place of residence. Well, like from when you move out of your principal place of residence, you've got six years that you don't have to pay capital gains tax and you can rent it out um, without any implications provided that you um, sell it in that six-year window or you move back into it and it resets for another six mm. years. As long as you buy another property yeah. to live in. Yeah, so as soon as you buy another property, well, that changes because you might lose the principal mm. place of residence on the first mm. place. So um, it is a little bit tricky. It works well if you're moving overseas or something like that um, for a period of time or you, you know, you got a job in the country and come back, which does happen. Yeah. Um, but what if you rented it out before fine. you moved into it? Say you bought it before you needed it, you didn't upgrade, you didn't move in straight away. What, what happens there? And then down the track you go and sell it. These questions are getting harder and harder. Ah, you're the expert. <laughs> um, I actually wrote an article in the Property Investment Magazine recently on that. Please share the link if you want to as well. We're happy to share that link in the, in the show notes. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll put it, we'll put it in the show notes. Yeah. Into the link. Um, yeah, maybe it's probably best if you read that article. I know, but you can get a quick like, snapshot yeah. now, surely. <laughs> okay, okay. Um, I think uh, I've just got to my mind back because I'd sort of spent a couple of hours researching it. Um, I think if you originally buy it as a rental property, and don't quote me on this, and then you move into it and turn it into a principal place of residence, depending on what you have, what's happening with other properties, I think that you get that principal place of residence maybe from the time that you move in. Can't, I have to. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I'm not sure. Because then you've got to work out what, you know, how the value is calculated and all that sort of stuff. So, yes, it would be really good if you could um, send us that link because I think that would be very useful for people to understand. So I guess we're at that point in the, um, you know, in our chat when we ask you what your Dumbo is. We've had some of your personal ones, which have been fantastic. So, and I'm hoping you can you can trump it. Um, horrible pun, but uh, – well, it's not a pun, but, you know, yeah. horrible name. Yeah. <laughs> I hope I haven't painted too bleak a picture. Like my property portfolio is just amazing. It gives me this incredible life. You know, it, my life's worked out 10 times better than I ever imagined. Um, now that I've got all the fundamentals, it just gets better and better. And I'm up to seven properties now. Um, and you know, a lot of my mates are going to syndication with clients, but my bank never says no when I ask them for money. You know, they just sort of more or less, it's getting harder, but um, it's just like I have this model now where I buy all these old rundown uh, houses on arterial roads into Adelaide and then I convert them into offices and then rent them out. And that model just seems to work really well from a capital gains point of view. And then, you know, I'm not focused on rent, but the rent astounds me every time I rent them out. I have to step in. I have to ask you, when you said that you, they do astoundingly from capital gains, how is that measured? Because you're taking a residential property that's on a main road and you're I'm presuming the zoning allows for it to be used as something different. Is that, yeah, yeah okay. So yeah. that, then that's why, because of the zoning? That- yeah, so, so I'm specifically in the office mm. um, zoning. A lot of people, they're living in office but as a residence and then I'm converting it, dealing with the council mm. and uh, like those people are moving out and they're on busy roads. So the residential aspect of it is getting less and less attractive mm. in the market. Yeah. 
you're getting out of buying them residentially sort of at a discount to market and then bringing them up to office mm. spec and then renting them out at office rates. Right. And you say that they're yeah, worth more get, as an office. You, you would be able to find another investor yeah. that would pay good money um, that would yeah, give you exactly. a good, what you uh, rate as a good gain. Yes. Yeah. And that, that seems to be a really good model. And then, you know, when you move into the commercial space, um, the, the, the rule book's completely different mm. to residential. Like, it's all in favour of the landlord. It's just crazy. Like, your tenant pays council yeah. rates. Your tenant pays your water rates. Your tenant pays your emergency services. They, they insure it. They have to renovate it and repair it, you know, like repaint it when they move out. They have to get the, 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 the lawns mold, you know. Like, But with my residences that I've got, my residential property, my light bulb blows. They can go and get an electrician in to change it and send me the bill. <laughs> Although there's more risk with commercial, which is one of the reasons that the banks, you know, that they view it as riskier because they tend to, uh, you know, lend less money on commercial. And obviously you've only got a particular type of tenant and if business goes bust, they go out and you might take your while to find another tenant for it. So your vacancy rates might be higher as well. Um, you know, so there's, there's, there's all this stuff swings and roundabouts, right? Mm, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, I, what you're saying is right. Like my bank will only lend 70% against these properties, but because I've got equity, mm. it's not a, a risk. But if you're trying to move into that space, you don't have a lot of equity. Well, that could be a limiting factor yeah. on how you get into it. And, and I have had offices which have been empty for two years. Mm. And it, it's, um, you know, that is a really stressful period of time. But then when it's rented out, happy days again. Yeah. So, so you, do, are you like a big extra sketch? You know, your life is like you, you can just like it's horrible while it's happening, but then you just swipe and refresh because you sound very positive. Yeah, well, <laughs> well, yeah, it's, it's you know that's the thing with property, isn't it? Like, it, 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 when you're starting out, it, it is a bit of a roller coaster ride. But once you get some, you know, you get some established tenants in your rent, your rent's picking up, and your debt's staying constant, and your values, it just gets easier and easier. Like every year, I sit on the beach, you know. The, at the beginning of January and just think, yep, yeah, another year down, all my properties have gone up in value. This is great <laughs> you be careful. You're sounding like a spricker. Hey, now, you, you're going to give us a Dumbo. Come on, what's your Dumbo? Okay, sorry. I'm getting sidetracked. So the Dumbo is me. Um, I was with, can we say banks' names on this or just sure. leave the banks? Yeah, okay. whatever you want. So, <laughs> it's on you. <laughs> I was with... Um, Westpac for 20 years and I had my, I was in private banking and um, my manager would do a biannual review and just tell me, look, don't have, don't, don't ask for a cheaper rate because the rate you're on is one of the sharpest, you know, for anyone in your space. And so I just took that as gospel. And the thing with, with um, that particular bank is they charge, I think this might be in the commercial space. And so I had my borrowings in the sort of commercial sector. They charge a lowish rate, but then a high line fee. So I was sort of a bit. Um, you mean a line of credit? You mean high line of credit? Did you mean high line, high line, or high loan fee? No, no. So um, yeah, so low interest rate, but then they charge a high like bank fee, right, which they call as a yeah. And and so you know to, to look at the true interest rate, you have to collectively add them together. Mm. Mm. You know, where, you know, with home loans, it's much easier because you just look at, oh, what's your rate or what's your comparison rate? So what happened was, so I didn't actually shop around for a rate. And then a call centre from ANZ, a guy from the call centre at ANZ rang me up and said, oh, you know, um, would you be interested in us re-quoting your home loan? And I said, yeah. And so he said, oh, well, how much is your home loan? But I told him, he said, oh, wow, um, that's quite substantial. Um, I'll put you on to the local branch manager. And then, so then he said, oh, it's too big for me. I'll give it to someone down the road. So he rang me up and said, oh, look, you basically sent all your finances in and we'll, we'll record it. And so he rang me up and he said, um, I think I can save you half a percent. And I said, are you kidding me? You know, I said, I've looked at what you're paying and I've rolled in all the line fees and you're going to save, you know, tens of thousands of dollars if you move over to me. So then I went back to my bank and I thought, you know, I've been around the block once or twice. I'll just leverage off that and say, look, you match it. And, you know, my manager was out at, on holidays. He said, oh, God, what are you ringing me for? He was really annoyed. And then he said, um, I'll, I'll look at it when I get back. So I had to remind him two weeks later. Ooh. And he actually, right. And all he had to do was type into his computer and change a number. And I got the same, right. And then 
the guys from ANZ rang me back and they said, no, no, you don't really understand how much we want to get your business. We'll go another quarter of a percent. And I was like, are you serious? I said, if you did that, I'd be so embarrassed. I wouldn't be able to go back to my old bank. I would just have to sign up. He said, I'll get the state manager to sign off on it. <laughs> you know, this afternoon and I'll let you know. So he did that and then lo and behold, I changed banks. But I feel like yeah. a dumbo because I've got my mortgage broken last <laughs> This was actually happening on my own. Oh, it's hilarious. Um, so this is like the mechanic's car. Exactly. The mechanic's car. But, but what's so amazing, though, is that, you know, like if you don't ask the question, the banks, it's not really in their interests to make sure you got the best deal. It's just in, the, in their interest to make sure that you don't know that you can do any better, right? Well, that's the trouble with the banking model, isn't it, Chris? Like, you know, they make money, yeah. set and forget, and you ignore the refinance lower interest rates um, requests that you get from the customers all the time. Hopefully they just shut up and pay up. Yeah. So when you go to a broker, uh, a broker gets paid um, the same amount, depend, does not, not affected by what rate you pay. Um, so, you know, the, the trial commission and the upfront fee doesn't really matter. If they get you a better rate, it's all in your pocket. But if you go to a private bank or a commercial bank, in terms of the way they're targeted as it's pocket per client. And so they'll look at your, if they have to sharpen your rate up, it comes out of their overall profit in terms of their client base. And so then they're not really incentivized to give you a discount because um, it's actually affecting their KPIs. And so unless you know what you should be paying and what's actually a really good rate in the marketplace, it's very hard to sharpen the bank up because the bank's saying, well, you know, they're kind of always sitting on that apathy. Um, so when we're dealing with private banks, they will always come back with some pretty average discounts. And then we have to say, hang on a sec, you know, we can get this with, you know, going retail. Well, this is what we can get from another private bank. You need to sharpen up. Um, and so private banks, are, you know, because their KPI is affected by what rate they offer. And so, yeah, you're right. When you're dealing direct with the banks, you're the one who's got to do the sharpening. Um, and that's one of the benefits of having that broker in the middle because they can say, actually, this is what you need to offer my customer to, to win them. Um, so, yeah, we've seen that as well where people do get very loyal with the bank, very sticky with the bank. You were there for 20 years and you were like, well, I've always been with Westpac. Westpac have got my back. Uh, well, no, Westpac is just hoping that you just don't look at your home loan and don't ask any questions. So, um, and that's, uh, especially in the last five years, discounts have moved a lot. Um, and so... You know, in the past, there wasn't much of a difference, but now there's a huge difference between an old customer and a new customer. I think customer. actually you and I, Chris, had a, did an episode on this exact topic, I think, back in March. So if anyone wants yeah. to go back and listen to that as to, you know, the pros and cons of using a broker over a bank, then um, because I was coming across a, a number of clients who exactly that, they had high net worth, they'd been with their private bank for many years, they really had this sort of sense of loyalty, and then they discovered that actually – you know, there was just so much more on offer for them if they just open up. And, and in fact, quite often those those private bankers dropped the ball as well at the critical times, which is why they ended up looking elsewhere. And then it was like, oh, my God, this is nuts. Um, so, yeah, just, and it, like I had about three clients all at the time, you know, having the same sort of thing happen. So it was, it was an interesting eye-opener. Kim, that was a very yeah. interesting, entertaining chat. As as I suspected, you know, you were certainly not the accountant that would send their send his wife to sleep with the tales of what you do in a day. Uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, as I said, please send that that link through. We'll in, include that and also the link to your business as well for anyone who feels like they would like to reach out to you. Okay, we'll do. Thanks for having me on the show, guys. Thank you, Kim. Good to chat. Cheers. We want to make you a better elephant rider. So this week's elephant rider training is... So we had a good chat with Kim and um, basically because he's based in Adelaide and we, we chatted to him a little bit offline around this as well, uh, a lot of what is you know, motivating him with his pro property strategy is potentially limited capital growth by just buying buy and hold in Adelaide. And so the markets he's in, he's thinking, well, where can I actually get some, you know, shorter sort of time frame returns because I can't just go buy that property and let it sit and hold like I potentially would do in Sydney or Melbourne. And so I think that's it's one of the challenges of that strategy. We've had clients who have done amazing out of uh, buying in areas of zoning and 
Um, but we've also had clients who have done developments and walked away with you know not even the money that they've spent. So there's, there's lots of risk with that strategy, especially if you're going with things like offices. Like you've got to think about the COVID world we're in. Like you built a product that may no longer be needed. Um, you know, etc. You know, uh, you, you know, you've had a, a high-rise, um, you know, retail in Paddington. You know, that would have been amazing five years ago, potentially not today, um, etc. So the commercial space, there is potentially a lot of big uplifts in it, um, but you've got to be really sure that the product that you're building is scarce. And if it's not scarce, then you're not going to get the return. So, um, yeah, I think that's what's driving Kim's strategies, looking to make and manufacture returns rather than just buying lands and holding it um, because he's based in Adelaide. And he's clearly um, the very fact that he's a licensed builder. And he didn't mention actually where he got that qualification, but it must have been after his experience working in the mining industry. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, he's got an extra set of skills that allows him to do that and to manufacture that, that um, growth in those properties. And I think that's something to be mindful of as well. join us for our next episode we're talking all about financial autonomy how does that differ from financial independence or financial freedom so we're interviewing paul benson who's the author of a book called financial autonomy he's also a financial planner and we're having a fairly esoterical chat about you know philosophy of wealth and whether you should be investing in ethical funds and a whole bunch of stuff that we do bring it all back to property and about really the decisions that can lead to freedom uh, and autonomy when it comes to property and your long-term future. So tune in for some great insights. If you're looking to buy your dream home or an investment property in Sydney's inner west, eastern suburbs or North Shore, my team and I can help you buy without regrets. Reach out via my website, gooddeeds.com.au. If you're looking to buy your first home, thinking of upgrading into a new one or purchasing an investment property anywhere in Australia, my team would love to carefully guide you on this journey. And most importantly, get the finance right. Reach out via our website, wealthful.com.au. If you're a first-home buyer and you don't want to miss a step with this most important purchase, join me on Wednesday nights at 7.30pm Sydney time on the Home Buyer Academy Facebook page for live Q&A. Check out the website, homebuyeracademy.com.au. Every month, my team hosts a webinar on what we are seeing at the banks, the best rates, changing policy and their service. We also share the latest insights we hear and read that are impacting the property market direction. Check out wealthful.com.au. Thanks for joining us. We'd love to see you again. And remember, don't be a dumbo.